Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. In the pipeline, we're going to see it. We're going to have a problem. So like if you create all these standards for how we give awards to people and we don't have the studios and the networks as committed to, you know, making sure their pipeline represents the demography of this country, then there's going to be a weird a weird result, you know, and we'll see that if this all plays out. Rashida Jones says the Motion Picture Academy's new diversity and inclusion standards are a start, but that real systemic change will have to come from all of Hollywood. I'm Clayton Davis. On this edition of Award Circuit, we talked to Rashida Jones about her new film, On the Rocks, including what it was like working with Bill Murray as well as reuniting with filmmaker Sofia Coppola. Also on this episode, we talked to Dear White People filmmaker Justin Simeon about his new project, the thriller, bad hair. But first, our awards roundtable takes a first look at this year's Oscar race and the burning question on everyone's minds. Should there be an Oscars at all this year? It's the first edition of Variety's new award circuit podcast. Stay close. Hey everyone, I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor here at Variety, joined today with Janelle Riley. Hello, I'm the uh, Deputy Awards and Features Editor at Variety. Jess Tanke. And I am the Artisans Editor at Variety. And Michael Schneider. And then there's me, Michael Schneider. I am the lone TV uh, holdout here. So I'm not going to have too much to say this time out, but, but I still am very fascinated by this race this year. Clayton, You've come on strong since joining Variety and have written quite a few provocative stories. Most recently, you had a strong sort of piece on why the Oscars should continue to exist this year, sort of in response to a Washington Post piece that suggested that maybe the Oscars shouldn't happen this year. You had a very strong argument for why, no, we got to keep moving with this, this sort of tradition. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the big point, obviously, is that There are, last year in 2019, there were 344 films submitted for the Academy Awards for Best Picture. We struggled to get the voting body to watch as many films as possible. Uh, In the piece, I talk about all the big major films that moved out of the year, and there were just 29. So if we're on par with last year, we may have 300 films that get submitted for Oscar consideration, and I think it would be preposterous to continue this narrative that's been going on all about but there are, there are no movies this year and we should cancel the year. How, how deeply personal and, and offensive that would be to people like Delroy Lindo, who, can, who uh, gives career best work in, in his film, The Five Bloods, or anyone else that's going to be in Oscar contention this year. I think it's just something that we need to come to terms with. And now we can expand and mature our cinematic palettes and watch films that we haven't normally seen before. 
Brown yeah, Bar, a plot over here? Yes. <laughs> yes. My, my soapbox is over. Okay. There you it go. seemed like a really bizarre argument to begin with. That to just like say, you know what, the films this year they just don't matter. Yeah, let's let's take a bye year. There, there's so many great films this year. Like it's that was such a bizarre argument for me to begin with. So I'm glad you said something. And and for the rest of you, I mean, this is there are plenty of great films this year. What are we even talking about? Yeah, there's and, and, already been so many. That's what's so crazy to me. Like people yeah. are acting like you know, just because there's not big blockbusters in theaters. And, and let's be honest, big blockbusters aren't usually things that fare that well at the Oscars. So we really are looking at yeah. the movies. I wish people, I know this is a podcast, but I wish people could see the the high fives we're giving. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Virtual yes. high five. I know. Um, okay, we'll we'll but, take some screenshots later about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Jess. I, I think there have been, like Janelle said, you know, there were so many films that came out early this year. We had, you know, Invisible Man. We had First Cow. There's been no shortage. And I think with all the spotlight being on, well, Wonder Woman, Dune, you know, Black Widow or moving, that doesn't mean there isn't an Oscar race. There is. And as you said, Clayton, it's about expanding our palette because even in Artisans, you know, I, at the beginning of the year, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to look at maybe doing this for Black Widow and this for that film. All of a sudden with that gone, you're looking at the smaller films and you're giving, you know, you're watching those independent films and they are great. Like, you know, I'm such a fan of Yellow Rose. Um, there's Lingua Franca. There's so many good films out there that people need to watch and discover and documentary field is a whole other conversation because mm. there are some stellar documentaries out there that could make maybe the, yeah, the, yeah. well yeah when, when when the academy first expanded to 10 nominees back in 2009 following the dark knight getting uh snubbed quote unquote uh the whole sell of it was we can now uh invite films that never usually have a chance in a top five like a big budget blockbuster and they cited a documentary we have yet to see a documentary in Best Picture. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, with this big change coming up, you know, let's let's see what they what they can do. Can you imagine being like Jude Law or Carrie Coon, who were like in the nest, or Delroy Lindo, who you mentioned, and like hearing people say, "Well, there are just no good movies." <laughs> like that's fighting words. Can, can you imagine being having a year where we're going to have for the first time two women in Best Director and saying, "Nah, cancel the year on that." Like, and and one of them is going to be the first black woman director and the first asian woman director like right. you know with a lot more road to go there's six more months to go don't want to lock anyone in but one of the greatest chances we ever have for that and i i just it's people just not looking beyond like what's in a theater near you you know yeah. right right and the other ir ironic thing is that distribution now being what it is this year at least uh, a lot of these films are more accessible that that you know more people are actually going to be able to find and watch these films granted at home but nonetheless, this is a year that, you know, that's changing the game, too. And, and so some of these films that may have been a little more obscure, a little more indie, are going to be more widely distributed. And there'll be more opportunities for them to turn into bigger hits. So yep. no Agreed. shame to the blockbusters, which I love. And I'm, you know, really looking forward to Wonder Woman 1984. But did we really think that was going to be a big best picture player? I mean, actually, maybe it will now. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, with all with all ninety seven other movies that are coming out next year that moved into that, into that spot, and then and listen, there's still that opportunity that we don't know if Wonder Woman will stay. I mean, every movie's moving every, you know, ten days or so, and that's like the last big budget movie on the horizon. Wonder Woman, I believe, in uh, Free Guy from Twentieth Century Studios. So, you know, 
then we just have the the indies and the smaller films and the streamers who are going to dominate. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah. So you guys have been talking about uh, the the festival season. Uh, you know, what are some some of the ones that did well this fall, and uh, what's what sort of uh, got momentum right now? Well, I mean, I th- I think you don't walk out of any festival uh, discussion without mentioning Nomadland from Chloe Zhao. Uh, one Night in Miami from Regina King. I think those were the two biggest movers on the on the festival circuit. Obviously, stopping at Venice, then Toronto, then going to you know half Telluride Drive-in in LA, and then before moving into uh, you know New York Film Festival, uh, there are some films there. Those those are the t- those are one of the top three films I think going into whatever season this is going to look like, and I think they've done very very well, and I think they're both poised to make some history in different in different ways. And going back even further than that, there was some great stuff at Sundance this year. I'm a huge fan of The Father, which, you know, everyone is in love with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, but I actually think the movie itself is going to do a lot better than, than maybe people are anticipating. Um, Minari premiered in Sundance. I have not spoken to anyone who, who doesn't love that movie. Um, we're seeing pieces of a woman doing really well, especially for Vanessa Kirby. And um, actually a movie that premiered at Toronto last year, um, The Sound of Metal with Riz Ahmed is, mm-hmm. you know, just played AFI and, and people really, really liked it. I'm a big fan of that film, um, which, you know, made some buzz out of Toronto last year, but I feel like it's really now picking up steam. Yeah, I think I think Riz is going to do some damage. And just a little tidbit for everyone out there, Anthony Hopkins, if he in fact does win Best Actor, and again, this is all nice and early to talk about, be the oldest acting winner ever. He'll beat Christopher Plummer. That's really? Been it. Yeah, he's going to be older than Christopher Plummer when wow. Christopher Plummer uh, won. He'll also be the oldest Best Actor nominee, I think, if nominated. So I think he's going to wow. be that record. But if he wins, he's the best. He's the oldest acting ever winner. I like how you say if nominated. Like, let's be real. The guy's I mean, nominated. yeah. <laughs> he's going to be nominated. I, I, I'm always weary about saying the L word or anything like that. Lock. He's a lock. Yes. But but it's, it would be a travesty if he wasn't nominated for it. I mean, he's this year's Renee Zellweger. It was, you know, when, when she came out with Judy last year and it was just like, maybe someone will come along to challenge, but, you know, she was always going to be there. That's, that's, Sir Anthony is, is sitting pretty this year. Yeah. Yes. He's a lock. He's a front runner. Mm. I'm going to say all those controversial <laughs> words. And we were just talking about the final scene. Not going to ruin it, but if you see that, that is definitely his Oscar winning moment. Let's see. But, you know, I think he is the one to be in the same way that Nomadland um, has come out really strong in the festivals. Another, well, I'm going to go animated feature, uh, Wolf Walkers from Cartoon Saloon. Uh, premiered at, what, TIFF? Um, and has screened at the AFI. That is such a good animated feature. And I think it's, it's going to be a contender definitely in the animated feature race. Yeah. Apple TV plus is going to push that hard and they're going to do some good stuff with it. And I have not seen soul, but everyone I've spoken to says that that is a best picture contender across the board. Oh, none of us live in London that we're able to cover that, 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 that beat for us. <laughs> no, damn. Sorry. We'll get on that next time. Uh, but yeah, great, great. So, I mean, soul, I mean, listen, over the moon, get, get ready. Like, I, I think I, yeah. I dubbed it the first Netflix princess has arrived and it is 
it is pretty spectacular. I, that, I saw that... I saw your tweet, Clayton. Uh, where you, it felt like <laughs> you were pretty emotional. Uh, so oh I'm my! Oh. oh my! Yeah. God. yeah, listen, I'm emotional these days, regardless, because you know, because <laughs> of a little pandemic going on. Yeah. But I mean, I was like, I had to like cover my face into a pillow. I like cried a lot. So it was yeah. just, it, it's emotionally, it's it's it's, it's moving, but it, it's some great music. And by the way, like just some people who don't know, because Glenn Keane uh, did did the film, who worked on Aladdin. It's his first uh, directorial uh, film on on an animated film. He's never directed an animated film before. I think we all had assumed that. Um, but yeah, he, he it, like I was like, God, why did it take this long to give him the keys on something? Yeah, and, and again, I, I'm just selfishly excited that I'm going to be able to watch that and Soul from the comfort of my home. Now, <laughs> I, I, I would love to go to the theater and see them, yeah. but you know, I'm not going to be able to. So at least I can watch them at home with my family, which is really exciting, and I think is really going to, you know, be huge for both of those films and exposure. Um, yeah. I'm curious. You guys are talking a lot about the the festival circuit. Obviously, this is a weird year with you know so much of that being virtual. How has that impacted? watching these films, deciding what are front runners, what what has it meant in terms of just how everyone's dissecting the race this year? Uh I mean, I, I think especially just coming out of the Middleburg Film Festival and I've and you know, us all of us covering Venice, Toronto, New York, you know, did it in a virtual setting from the comfort of our own home. Um, I got to see Nomad Land for the first time on a big screen. And it was my third time watching it. And watching on a big screen really did something different that that you do miss on miss out on when you're watching mm-hmm. it from your computer or you know casting to your to your television. Um, I, I it's it's been a weird monster to cover. Um, I like that it is becoming more accessible to people who don't live like you know in Telluride and or don't have the money or or means to travel to to Canada in September. Um, but I think as we navigate this whole awards beat, I think voters will especially catch on quicker uh, to like the buzzier films because it's all going to be accessible through the Academy platform that they have now. And this is the last year that they're going to be physical screeners regardless. So starting next year, they have to watch it, you know, either on their Academy platform or uh, whatever studio sets up a screening room for them. How did you see it on a big screen? Did you actually go somewhere? yeah, I went to Middleburg Film Festival. Uh, they had 30 balcony rooms at uh, at the resort. And on the green was a, the, a big jumbo screen and you could watch it from your balcony. And then there were people that were sitting on the green to, to watch the movie. It was beautiful and amazing. Like, I, like I, was, I was really happy that I had the opportunity to see it. But then it, all, it was the first time I saw a movie on the big screen since Onward. It's the last time I saw something on the big screen. So I, then you kind of get all nostalgic and stuff, and you're like, "Oh my god, I miss movies!" Like I like I miss the movies. Not I've watched plenty of movies, but you miss a theater, and I think it just really drove home that like you know, thing these things are important, and I think the industry is going to become more uh, privy to those things and remember how why we love the movies so much. I also went to a drive-in, which was my first time I ever went to a drive-in theater before. I uh, I haven't been very open about this publicly because I don't want to answer um, judgmental questions, but I actually went to a theater to see Tenet. Um, very special circumstances it was for my birthday. My friends rented out, people I'm in a pod with rented out uh, a Were smaller- you the one sitting next to Tom Cruise in that video? <laughs> no, <laughs> there were only six people in my theater. And we. It, what, was, what was fascinating to me was um, we had to drive down to Orange County 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're going into a public theater. Um, but then once we were in the screening room, it was just me and my friends that I'm quarantined with. So we felt very safe. But we did leave our masks on. And, you know, mm-hmm. we were very careful. And what really impressed me was after such a long period of time, how quickly it came back. Sitting there with your popcorn, you know, and the sound design and, um, you know, and, and like little things like how annoyed I would get if people next to me were talking. <laughs> you know, like the, the whole experience came rushing back. And you, there is a lot to be said for watching in the comfort of your own home, you know, and I think a good movie holds up in any medium. I've, I've seen yeah. great movies on little screens on, on airplanes, but God, it, it, was, it was so wonderful, you yeah. know, to be in a theater and to have that experience. And then as soon as it was over, we, we walked out and were, you know, inside a theater and we all got paranoid and weird and there was <laughs> and <so> ran. <laughs> yeah. I miss you hours yeah, yeah. we were I miss it it. heaven i miss hearing yeah. people like you know when you go to a screening you know and just swapping notes and like standing in the lobby for like 30 minutes just talking about the film or like what you loved what you hated and like you know i just miss yeah. that so much like you know we watch films now like as you were saying like you know on our laptops and all like on TV and then that's it. And it's like, have you seen the film? You're sending text messages and then mm. you're on Twitter, but there's no actual conversation. And how easy it is to get distracted from watching the movie, you know, so in, in, yeah. in, the, in those settings. You know, I, I miss I miss the bar in front of me at the at the movie theater because I always sit in the first row, yes. the upper, that's where <laughs> yes. I put my feet. That's yeah. what I miss Forever. the most. Yeah, well, that's we, my spot. We had- the plush uh, recliner seats. I know. Um, yeah. Yes, we went all out. So it was, yeah. yeah and uh, also seeing tenants specifically in a theater, yeah. like the sound design was shaking that building. It was, yeah. you know, it was, it was, it was moving my soul. It yeah. was so much fun. Yeah. But no, no judgment. If, if you go to the movies, as long as you're safe about it, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we've all been preaching, right. right? You know, if you go, sure, but just be safe about it. Yeah, yeah, and thank God it was tenant. I was going to be really upset if I like risked my life for a really cruddy film. <laughs> yeah, I was going to name one, and then I said nope. I'm not gonna I started. No, <laughs> we're not going to name any film. Everything in me not to not. Oh God, I think I have an ulcer that just grew just now because like I have to get it out after we're recording. We're probably thinking of the same movie. So. I know. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, a, a friend of mine uh, actually uh, bought one of those big inflatable screens and put it in his backyard. So mm-hmm. a couple time uh, for uh-huh. the, the Bill and Ted movie, of course, uh-huh. uh, me and the family went over and he and the family were socially distant. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so just sitting in the backyard on a big screen, eating popcorn, watching the movie in the backyard, it was sort of like, okay, this is this yeah. is close. It's not yeah. quite being in the theater, but at least we got a little bit of a communal experience and it was just really nice. Yeah. I so, don't really, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say a drive-in is going to be the award season for this. Like, is this how we're going to do this award season? Like, because what was it? Um, One Night in Miami tonight is having its premiere at AFI Fest. It's going to be at a drive-in. Last week, the trial of Chicago 7 at a drive-in. Mm-hmm. So is that how the landscape I mean, that, it's, it's going to have to be right. It's going to have to be how. You, well, in terms of Academy voters, right? How do you get Academy voters to see your film or ensure that they see your film? Because you can send out links all all day, every day, but it's all about you know they they want to physically see you know Steven Spielberg come into this you know coming in. His, I don't know if he's coming in a car. He's probably coming in late. But, 
something else. <laughs> he and his helicopter. He yeah, he <laughs> yeah. And he just puts it up and, and watches. So yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's going to be the new norm. The thing about drive-ins, uh, as anyone can imagine, they're really expensive, like to, to put together. And I don't love it. I mean, they're, they're doing the best they can, but like, you know, something like Nomadland specifically, I saw it at a drive-in and it's a great movie. So it held up, mm-hmm. but you want to immerse yourself in that you know, and, and being in a car with a friend and having cars in front of you and everyone has to mm. rev their engines every 20 minutes or else their battery <laughs> yeah, will that, die. Right, terrible, right. Yeah. It's not ideal. And, yeah. and everyone's screens are, your, your, your windshield's a little dirty and you always yeah. have to clean it yeah. before you go. And I realized how dirty my car was this yes. weekend. I was like, oh yeah. my God, I need a car wash. <laughs> yeah. And you oh, see man, like, but- you know, people on their phones lighting up. Yeah, yeah. I, I would I would say the, the drive-ins also like there there is like because uh, Middleburg had a fifty car limit and I think that's a good nice. size. There's something that doing like ninety yeah. cars and that's yeah. got to be just ungodly. Guys, tell me about the movies that are still unseen. That uh, you mentioned Soul, a couple of the others, but uh, mm-hmm. what are the ones still kind of coming up that you're excited to to check out? Oh well, uh, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, we're all gonna you know I mean? say it. one, two, three. Mank. News oh, of the world. Oh, I was gonna say News of the <laughs> no, world. Man, <laughs> are we on three different movies. That's good. Uh, no, well, that's yeah, good. I mean, all, all three of them are the correct answer. But yes, um, uh, News of the world. Paul Greengrass coming back again. Tom Hanks is saving a little girl. He was our dad that got COVID first, so I think we're just like really excited to see him and see that he's you know doing well and doing his thing again. Um, but Mank again, like yeah, that, that's com- that's coming down the pipe. A movie about Hollywood. And yeah. that cast, I mean, like Gary Oldman, Charles Dance, and Amanda Seyfried, who I think is in a weird way, a really underrated actor. She mm-hmm. keeps popping up in these great, you know, award-winning movies, giving these great performances. And, you know, I just, I don't think she's gotten the respect she's deserved. So I'm very yeah. anxious to see that. Go ahead, Jeff. Tell you something about Ma Rainey. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I've just seen preview the, the event this morning and it's Chadwick Boseman's last performance. It looks incredible. Viola Davis um, plays Ma Rainey and, you know, her voice just blew me away. Um, it's, it looks, I'm so excited to see the full film. Um, but yeah, it's based on the August Wilson play. Denzel Washington produces it and George C. Wolfe is the director, but it just, that score, the music just gave me goosebumps and yeah. Chadwick just Clayton cover your ears Chadwick Boseman is a lock so much for saying it let me just add pending which ca- which category is decided upon because there is a chance for and, and we're talking about a challenger to Anthony Hopkins if it does go the lead route I wonder if Chadwick is the challenger there it'd be it'd be interesting to see because it's not confirmed yet where he's going. Mm-hmm. So. He plays Levy in the film, um, who's a, he's a coronet player, but hasn't that role traditionally always yeah. been a lead in theater? No, supporting. It got nominated for the Tony in supporting, but interesting is also the person who played uh, Ma Rainey also got nominated in supporting yes. at the Tony's. Well, featured, so, they call it. But yeah, featured, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is... a. It is um, a straddler kind of role. It can go either way. So I think it's just about what they end up, you know, deciding upon. But supporting actor, I think, listen, everyone assumes that supporting actor is the more wide open kind of uh, race to go upon. But other side unseen, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. 
Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, uh, you know, it's it still feels like it could be coming this year. Uh, United States versus Billy Holiday, wait, Andrew Day playing Billy Holiday, and respect with uh, Jennifer Hudson playing Aretha Franklin. Those are the big side scenes that still need to be seen. Oh, and Cherry, Tom Holland, who's r- rumored to be like maybe a thing or not. We'll see what happens there. Coming full circle. That sounds like a lot of contenders. This sounds like a big Oscar year. So Clayton, you were writing your story and uh, looking forward to chatting every week with all of you and learning more about what's going on this, uh, this unusual and most interesting Oscar season. Six more months. (laughs) Six more months. Oh, you love it. Like, like this is this is this is God punishing us because all of us were like all complaining last year. Like this is the shortest season ever. I never want a short season like this again. And he was like, "All right, here you go. Here's a year and a half. Just go." <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's all a right. lot of those. Well, we're all gonna get sick of each yeah. other. So yeah. thanks so much. Uh, great talking to you all, and uh, we'll reconvene next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Clayton Davis. Rashida Jones has added several hyphens to her career in recent years. She may be best known for starring in series such as Parks and Recreation and Angie Tribeca. But Jones has also been busy executive producing series like Claws and Black AF, in which she stars with creator Kenya Barris. She's also writing projects like an episode of Black Mirror and directing films such as Quincy, the music documentary about her father, the legendary Quincy Jones. Now, Rashida Jones is garnering her own Oscar buzz for her latest role in the Sofia Coppola feature, On the Rocks. The film stars Jones as Laura, a woman who suspects her husband Dean, played by Marlon Wayans, is cheating on her. Bill Murray plays her father, Felix, a ladies' man who wants to help her uncover Dean's infidelities. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. A woman is at her most beautiful between the ages of 35 and 39. Great, so I have many months left. I recently talked to Jones about On the Rocks, as well as Hollywood representation and much more. We began by discussing how On the Rocks may be her strongest performance to date, as she digs into something profound and personal. You want to get better. I mean, you know, you'd rather get better than worse, right? Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) It's a good good improvement, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, so uh, listen, I I like to kind of frame these as laid back and chill as possible. And obviously we want to get into your process, but also want to get to know you. Uh, I'm the the new film awards editor here. And, you know, I I want to kind of rip down those walls between uh, Hollywood and then the consumer, because I consider myself a pretty normal uh, movie guy. Um, Let's talk about, obviously you come from a very artistic family. Can you talk about what, your earliest memory of a movie was that like knocked knocked you back on on your butt that you were like I gotta do this like uh, for- I don't know I don't know if it was if it was the reason that I wanted to act but the first memory I have of really being like 
just aware of it, how much emotion you could feel when, you know, when you're sitting in front of a huge screen, I think was E.T. Mm. Awesome. Do you remember who was there with you? Do you remember like kind of the setup of it? I was with my mom. Um, I was with my sister. We were in the movie theater. Um, it had just come out. Um, the days of I, the days of not reclining seats and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, the days of movie theaters. I know. Yeah. Right? Um, but but I remember I remember very vividly being so emotionally overwhelmed, especially you know the scene when ET is like sick and he's dying and 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 just want just just being spilled with tears and not wanting my family to see <laughs> like just not wanting not necessarily wanting that that to have that experience with anybody else but but just like being completely knocked over by by how much i could feel you know yeah. because i was so little um but yeah that and that movie so it's still so incredible the, kid, the kids acting was the both the kids acting all the kids acting was just miraculous like incredible just such a depth of emotion Awesome. Um, so you have gotten to work with some pretty amazing people over your career. Um, but this time around, you fell into the hands of one Sofia Coppola, like one of the goddesses of cinema. And she is a auteur, you know, a, a, an amazing talent behind the camera. Can you talk about what it was like to work with her uh, on On the Rocks? Well, yeah, Sophia is just, I mean, she's really a, a marvel because she has this way of really kind of um, a graceful command that um, that I've just never, I, I've just very rarely been in the presence of somebody like that before where she she knows what she wants. She has a very clear aesthetic and tone and world. And the minute you drop into it, you know you're in it. Um, and you know who the boss is, but she's not, um, you know, she's not demonstrative about that. She doesn't make any, she, she, she makes it her, her job to make everybody feel really comfortable and included and a part of the process and also, and, and safe and relaxed so that they can do their best work. Um, but then, you know, she has this really, she's got a gift. And so her gift as a director is that she creates an entire world but she does it with such a delicate touch that you almost don't even know what's happening you know um which i'm just i'm in, in such deep admiration of of her and how she how she rolls through the world and how she and how she makes how she creates but but being with her is you know it is it's very comfortable and it's fun and it feels collaborative um and and i also feel like i want to respect her and her process because she's so respectful of my process she's awesome yeah um you have such a great uh rapport and just a, a really great energy with your co-star marlon waynes and you know i'm i'm actually even working on a piece right now about you know these quote-unquote comedians that have such a dramatic heft to their acting abilities and what they're able to bring to the role and and you guys work so well off of each other um but you also like you're having the time of your lives so can you tell me a little bit about that experience on uh making him you know your husband that you're suspicious of 
I love Marlon. We we met when I was, I think I was 19 when we first met. And I was like, this is the funniest person I've ever met. <laughs> he made me laugh so hard. Um, always been funny, Marlon. But um, he's just, he's the loveliest person. He's got such a good energy. And I just was so excited to work with him because, you know, he's, he's so, he's so hardworking and he's so, he has such a good attitude for somebody that goes, you know, has been raised in a, in a, in a family that's, you know, kind of dominates this business and stuff. He just has such a good attitude and perspective on the business and on being on set. Um, and I knew that he would help me to continue to have a good attitude. And, um, and he's also just, yeah, he's a very available actor and he really came, he came to play and it was, you know, he, I think he brought, he really brought the home life to life because I wanted to make sure that this story, the story is so dependent on feeling like the family unit is real, you know, and that there is love there and that, you know, there it, it's, and that it's kind of deep and complicated and, it sort of, this it sort of needed to make sense, you know, um, beyond just the paper. So he he really added depth and um, and warmth and dynamics to that. Uh, uh, look at looking a little bit in, in like over your career, and you are one that just kind of isn't afraid to dip into every facet of of the Hollywood industry. Obviously, acting, uh, producing, directing even narrative feature versus documentary feature. And then obviously you've written even a few songs for soundtracks of, of movies, including Celeste and Jesse forever, uh, which you uh, had co-wrote um, coincidentally enough, like literally in the next three hours, I'm talking to Andy Samberg too, which is. Oh, just you kinda, are? Yeah. But, okay. but I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, you're definitely the better of the, of the two right now. And I have to make fun oh. of him a little bit. I can't, I can't let him know and let his head get too big on that. But um <laughs> But have you have you just always been just drawn to all avenues of art? And if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Or would you have just found some way to do it, whether or not you could? I don't I don't know. I mean, I think I think there's a lot there was a lot of versions. I'm not sure that, you know, I had I, I don't know if I believe that I had like some destiny to be in entertainment or an actor or whatever. Um, but I do think whatever I was doing, I would probably find five different versions of doing it. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, that might be a little bit ingrained in me from my dad and a little bit just the way that I'm built, which is like, you know, I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who ever was like so gifted in one category that I had to pursue that thing. I'm more like, you know, like I'm a Jill of all trades. I'm pretty good at a lot of things. If I put my mind to it, if I, take some time. I can, I can do okay with, with things if I, you know, if I put my head to it. So I feel like whatever I would do, I, I would do an okay job. I, I believe I would do a, a pretty okay job to make a living in, in another area, which is, I think why I keep trying other things because, um, you know, I, I do, I'm, I'm pretty good at not feeling totally afraid to start something new. Um, as long as I feel like I have a good system and I'm, I'm I'm smart enough to know who's better at me than things. So I just surround myself by those people. You know, I have a, I have a trick. I have a trick to make it work. <laughs> um, so w- when you, when you look 
and I'm very big on like timing, just like kind of way things happen uh, in in one's life. And you know, you're a new mom. Congratulations on on that. Um, do you think you could have done this role the way you did it if it had been done if you had taken on the role like five ten years ago? I don't know. No, I mean, I think I do feel like I think I think about this a lot with this movie because. You know, I've known Sophia for a long time. Um, we did this workshop together when I was like 27, 28 for Lost in Translation before she made that movie. I workshopped that lead part with her, you know, and I remember thinking like, oh, what a great director and what a great part. And I obviously didn't get the part, but like, you know, there is something about coming back now and working with Sophia and we've worked together in like kind of little bits over the years it does feel like a timing thing where like there, there kind of was no other version of working with her before this moment on this particular type of role, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I believe in timing too. Um, in, in so many ways, but I think especially with acting actors and parts, I do feel like that, that is sort of destined, you know, like I look at, I'm sure actors look at parts all the time, oh man, that, what a great part, what a great movie, what a great TV show, I could have been that. But I don't think so. Like, I think that part is sort of destined to be as great as it is because of that actor. So, you know, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some synergy, there's some trust you have to have that like the, you know, the timing, the timing will do some work for you, you know? Yeah. um, And, and I, 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 I hear what you're saying there. And I think the way you kind of approach the role, especially as, you know, one as a, as a, as a wife with suspicion, but also as a, as a mother uh, looking to hold on to her family. And then also as the daughter having this bonding moment with your father played by Bill Murray. Um, I, I think it's only appropriate now that we talk about Bill Murray and that uh, exchange that you guys have. Uh, I mean, you guys, it, I thought you guys were father and daughter, you know, not, you know, just, it, it, it was mind blowing how well you guys worked off one another. I know you guys also have worked together before on a very Murray Christmas, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so was it just like coming and, back? And you um, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Tribeca, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Wait, side note is, is it ever, can I get it back please? Like ever, I, I wish. I know it's my favorite. No, I, I, I wish. I love that show. Literally, the worst thing is that not being in my life right now. <laughs> I like know. I love Angie Tribeca. All this right. is like the perfect time for Angie Tribeca. Oh my god! Yeah, like the like. Oh my god! Or can I just get like just reruns, just like regular on loop? But whatever. I think well, you can. That that I think is the internet makes that possible. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Bill, B- Bill Murray was it was like riding a bike. Uh, you know, just getting back on with it because he's such an unpredictable force, and he's also so seasoned and and professional as well. What what was it like working with him on on this and one of his uh, strongest roles yet? He's um. You know, he's so. He, I know he's a, a legend and he, you know, he's, he, he, it's like, I feel like everybody has a story about meeting him and, you know, he's great. He's so great to be around and he's so, um, he is kind of unpredictable and, and fun. Um, but, you know, as a, as a friend and a co-star, cause I really do consider him a friend now. Um, he's, 
so warm and uh, generous and present. You know, he's always he's always in the in that moment. And like he, I think he's um he's just a uh, he's just so he's such a deep character of a human being. He's got deep character. You know, he's he is not one thing mm-hmm. all the time, and so the pleasure of working with him on something like this is there was something kind of remote about this character. And then there was something kind of sad about this character. Um, and then there was something incredibly charming and inviting about this, about him. So just having all that to work with. And then, and then on top of that, to just, he just gave me so much to respond to and to work with because I, you know, my character in some regards doesn't really, she's listening a lot. And I think that, that she's used to that because her dad has lots of theories and lots of things, but it was not, it was not hard to, you know, have, have um, layers to play with in terms of what, what I was listening to, because it's so wonderful to listen to Bill. I mean, he's, you know, he makes everything interesting. He's interesting. He's just inherently interesting indeed. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, like, uh, because I think the movie resonates so much with, with me and I'm usually just one that like inherently has like, you know, kind of daddy issues or whatever. And like, you know, kind of wishes (laughs) that we had like this, you know, profile, like I was watching the film and I was like, I kind of wish I had this like profound moment in which my dad is following me around to find out if my spouse was cheating on me or not. But we kind of had fun at the same time. And it was a weird little thing. Well, well, you like, want that? well, like, because, because you could, because you, if you don't have anything, you just wish for something, you know? So like, right, 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 I right. just, I just don't think that relationship is just non-existent in, in my life. So when you approached mm. it, um, how did you relate that to your own relationship with, with your father? Well, I do really, you know, I, I, I do spend a lot of time with my dad. Um, but I relish the moments with him always. And, you know, we've, we've had like really fun trips or nights out and he is, he's got that same thing where he's like, you know, he's a planet and, and Bill's, you know, Bill's character is a planet. You know, there's like everything sort of orbits around him and his brilliance and his shininess and his, his, you know, he is, he's the centerpiece of the evening of the day of the, and like, and I do, I relate to that. And I love that. And there is something really specific. And Sophia and I discussed this about being in your father's orbit when they have like such a big world and a big talent and a big personality. It's really, it's really fun to be in that. It's fun to be around that and to be a, a relative, you know, relative to that and a relative of that, because I definitely am a daddy's girl and he loves me so much. And I love that he loves me so much. So that's, that is very much relatable for me. Um, as, as you know, the, the Academy Awards uh, announced new diversity representation and in- inclusivity standards uh, recently that were met very divisively within the industry. Um you, you and your family are kind of the pioneers of a lot of firsts, you know, in, in both film and television. Obviously, your dad, uh, Quincy Jones, was the first black producer nominated for Best Picture for The Color Purple. Um, you yourself were just the third woman 
ever nominated for documentary filmmaking at the Emmys uh, when you were nominated for a Hot Girls Wanted. You were also just like the sixth bl- Black woman nominated for that prize period also just wow i didn't know that yeah (laughs) yeah and i I would love to get to the day where i'm not like having to talk about oh the first is the first that and then it's all relative to that was in 2015 you know um and just looking now you know because your work is so so great and so so profound here you would be just the lucky number 13 uh woman nominated for best actress at the academy awards if this goes the way of you know that you know it could this year for on the rocks what do you what do you see as the shift in the industry do you see it actually getting better and do you see us moving in the right direction or do you think we're just kind of far away from getting those uh barriers fully lifted Oh, it's a very complex question. You know, I think that the attention paid and the intention of of creating standards to uphold an industry to a, to a better, um, uh, more uh, accurate representation of this country is great. And it needs to keep happening, but there's so many factors that go into movie making and there's so many factors that go into inequality and there's so many factors that go into systemic racism, as we all know. And, and Hollywood is just a microcosm for this country really. Um, and a reflection and sometimes a poor reflection and sometimes an aspirational reflection. So, you know, I think it's good. It's uh, there's, there's so many things that have to line up to really, make this dream come true. And I think some of it comes from the inside, some of it comes from the outside, some of it comes from the studios, some of it comes from the people giving awards, some of it comes from moviegoers. Um, and not, no, no one thing is going to fix that problem. And I think if there's a strain and an imbalance on one side and it's not, and it's not buoyed, you know, in the pipeline, we're going to see it. We're going to have a problem. So like if you create all these standards for how we give awards to people and we don't have the studios and the networks as committed to, you know, making sure their pipeline represents the demography of this country, then there's going to be a weird, a weird result, you know, and we'll see that if this all, if this all plays out. So I think it's going to be, it's going to, it has to be this kind of like this concerted collective pressure from all the different areas and i you know i i i do i do believe in um in in kind of pressuring people pressuring things to change i do believe in that but i also think that you have to change hearts and minds and the way to try change hearts and minds is to tell great stories and you know great stories don't necessarily come from pressure they come from you know um great storytellers. Um, so that's, that has to be the, that has to be the most important thing. And that's like, you know, I hope that studios continue to find ways to let storytelling in that, that haven't necessarily, and to nurture storytellers to tell, tell it in a way that's truthful and beautiful, um, from the, from the, from jump, from the beginning, as opposed to like just the end of the line with the awards. Sure. Sure. When are you directing a movie, Rashida Jones? Come on, I know, I know, it's, I know it's in there. I know, I know something's coming. I'm working coming. on it. Yeah, when I'm is working it on it. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's a tough time to to create right now. I've I've had a hard time 
figuring out how to plug in because, you know, I want to make something that's meaningful, but I also want to make something that's true to me. And it's just a weird time and things change every single day. And there's so many things that people are worried about and concerned about. That's why this movie is really, it's the timing of this movie is really nice because it's about relationship, but it is, it is fun and it's beautiful to look at. And it's, it already, it's, instantly feels nostalgic because of you know the state of the world right now and so Mm -hmm. it's it's nice to be a part of something that can offer like a little like a little respite from the the relentless nature of our news cycle and and just the things that are happening in the world yeah all right i have have one last question for you and and i I feel like i can ask you i feel like we are (laughs) a little bit in in sync this way um so I'm half I'm half Latino and half black and uh and my entire life I feel like I've struggled with this kind of cultural identity. I wasn't mm. black enough for my black side and I wasn't Latino enough for my Latino side and that just I'm not white so I'm not white enough for the white people. I kind of that whole manifestation uh that kind of comes with, you know, colorism and and just uh discrimination and just people just not understanding or being well educated. Um, as someone who came up, you know, as, as a biracial woman, uh, in the space that clearly you have great deep connections to both, uh, parts of your, of your, uh, ancestry and your ethnicity. Um, what, what kind of message do you have for those people that are also struggling, uh, with, or feel like they have to choose a side when that's Mm. not the case, you know? Uh, what what kind of message do you have for that young girl or boy trying to come up in this space? Oh, it's so difficult right now because identity, but identity politics are so they're just, the block is hot. It's just fiery around every single kind of identity. And for mm-hmm. anybody who's sort of in the middle, it does feel like you got to pick a lane and then you have to stick with it. And if you mm-hmm. don't, you're canceled by everybody. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as somebody who grew up biracial and, you know, like it's it is you sort of feel like you belong everywhere and you belong nowhere at the same time, always. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I don't think that's ever going to change. I think yeah. that's, that's sort of the nature of of being more than one thing. And, you know, as much as I am incredibly proud of my blackness, you know, I, I know I'm a I'm acutely aware of how I look and how and how people see me when I come come across them in the world and of course like some people are like you're not black I mean people have told me I'm not black my whole life which is (laughs) deeply you know hurtful because Mm -hmm. it's it's not true but it's also like what can I do it's people are going to respond the way they respond to me and I can only be what I can be but I do think there is a, a beauty underlying all that which is that you know you're a bridge like you are a bridge between latin culture and black culture whether you like it or not so you know you're like you're almost like a double agent you go into one community and you know mm-hmm. you know the perspective of the other community or you get you probably get the racism of one community you know and then the other community so you're constantly trying to to bridge those two things but there is like there's a beauty in that because it's like it's almost like a superpower where you have to see both sides all the time mm-hmm. um and I do think that people who have that can can bring people together because they can explain things and they have a patience with the other side that nobody else will, you know? Um, obviously we're not talking about like deep hate, but I think right now we're, we're in this crossroads where there's so much energy and 
fervor and aggression around identity politics. And so the people who kind of like sit in the middle who do, it's confusing to sit in the middle. They, they have the, they do have the power to maybe bridge the gap and have hard conversations that people don't want to have right now. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's awesome. So, oh, well, Rashida, you're just as perfect as I thought you were going to be. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking this time with me. I'm, I'm like, again, I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for what you bring to this role. And I'm going to be championing you pretty much the year. So just get ready to keep oh, hearing a lot you. about me. Talking about <laughs> you again. On the Rocks is now showing in limited theatrical release and premieres October 23rd on Apple TV+. Filmmaker Justin Simeon has earned tons of critical acclaim for his Netflix series Dear White People, which is based on his independent film of the same name. Now, just in time for Halloween, Simeon's new film Bad Hair is a horror take on black female identity and the relationship that black women have with their hair. Elle Lorraine and Vanessa Williams are among the film's stars. Variety's Jazz Tanke recently spoke with Simeon about Bad Hair and how it originated. Hello and welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's great to be here. I am so excited to talk to you about bad hair. Um, but before we dive into that, because it's October and horror month, let's go back. And what was like the first horror movie that you saw, whether you were too young to <laughs> see it or... Right the first over. horror movie I saw was, was Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the second one, the... <laughs> The gay subtext, supposedly subtextual one. Um, yeah, I saw that a, at a very, very young age. My Aunt Zora, who um, used to sort of watch me when my mom was at work or sometimes on the weekends and things like that, you know, she loved movies. She loved science fiction. She loved fantasy. She loved horror. And um, <laughs> yeah, that was just one of the, the things I watched at a very inappropriate age and truly had no idea conceptually what was even happening in the movie but i was i loved freddy krueger since i was a little kid and you didn't lose any like sleep over that watching that i i I think my brain was literally too young to comprehend anything that was happening in particular except there was this guy with this really dope fedora and like a glove with nails on it and he was out here in these streets like that's kind (laughs) of all my childhood brain could really compute and i thought that was very cool it was really much later when it dawned on me that (laughs) he's not the protagonist really and uh you know all of these kids are in terrible danger (laughs) for you during horror like what was the the I guess, what was the point that made you say, okay, this is what I want to, I want to do bad hair and I'm going to do it as a horror movie. Well, we were, you know, my producers and I, we were really like into this movie called The Wig. It's this uh, Korean horror film um, about a possessed wig. And uh, there's a, there's another one called X-Day, which is about hair extensions in particular. Uh, Neither movie really um, deals with any of sort of the American um, black issues with hair. And, And really at the time when we were kind of, talking about those movies it was just sort of a funny idea like what if we did this in america you know and and got into you know the the lives of a black woman as our final girl and sort of like you know what would that do and it was really just kind of like one of those things that you talk about and that'll be nice and then we all went home and dealt with other things i think this was like right around the time dear white people um had just hit sundance and then i realized I loved horror movies and I I have since I was a really young kid, as I mentioned before. And yet I never really imagined that I would do one. And that kind of 
was a strange moment for me because I was like, why haven't I imagined that? Like, I love these movies. And it was, you know, almost I was a little mad, actually, because I, the truth is I just didn't really see myself in those movies. And so literally it didn't really cross my mind. But the more I thought about it, I had so much to say with that concept and so many movies that I love that had really sharp social commentaries are actually in this horror psycho thriller kind of vein. Um, I felt like hair really is a horror motif in my life. I'm a man and it was a horror motif in my life, whether it was anxiety about getting my hair cut as a gay man trying to be macho in a certain space, me trying to get an S curl at an age where, you know, I don't, I guess it was appropriate, but it was not for me. Um, and then, you know, obviously like I, 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 you know, do dear white people. It's a cast of women. Uh, I was raised by women. I'm very, very familiar with, you know, what hair is to black women, again, that is often a source of horror <laughs> uh, and pride. I, I just that whole idea of hair horror, especially, you know, you could hear, hear about that every single day if you look hard enough or if you like listen to your friends, but the Absolutely. idea of, of the weave and setting it in 1989, which was such a big era, you know, the hair. Why 1989? 89 kept coming up in my research the year where, not where weaves were invented, but where they really began to cross over for, you know, the everyday Black woman as a possibility for her. And, you know, there was a big cover issue about Janet Jackson that year. They, they didn't, it's not related, but on the cover, I believe it's Ebony, I might, it might be Essence. Um, but one of these magazines, it's got a cover of Janet Jackson with that beautiful Rhythm Nation hair. And, you know, kind of like sidebar somewhere on the cover is, you know, something about the weave, something about weaves taking over or, you know, and it just sort of like felt like the right era. I was, um, you know, I was six years old uh, in 1989. That was the year my dad died. Uh, that was a very transitional year for me. And I, I was really into music. I didn't know that what I was listening to would eventually be called New Jack Swing and, you know, would be identified as its own separate genre. But I was really into the music of the time. I was super into Janet and like Prince and Jody Watley and Karen White and, all, and Whitney Houston. I was mm -hmm. so into those people at that age. And it just, it just sparked my imagination. And the more and more I dug, the more and more I kept finding so many parallels in that year. Um, you know, the New Jack Swing one being a big one for me because like the weave uh, and uh, other things that sort of felt very celebratory for black people at that time, it would end up being a burden. Um, you know, New Jack Swing was something that black people invented. <laughs> it really was not done before Janet Jackson did it in control and before Heath Sweat mm -hmm. refined it with I Want Her. Um, Teddy Riley, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they all created the sound. But by the end of the 90s, that sound was called pop music. And it was Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys and, and Sync singing it. You listen to those albums, it's just New Jack Swing with white people. <laughs> and yet it was this huge explosion. And we all forgot that Janet invented that actually and yeah. Keith Sweat invented it and all these other black entertainers that people aren't, weren't on anyone's radar in the mid to late 90s actually invented this sound that really allowed for um, black artists and white artists, frankly, to reach a pop audience that they weren't able to before. It, it was that double-edged sword of, there's a renaissance of blackness, but in just a few years, it's not gonna be yours anymore. And you worked with the incredible Chris Bowers on Ugh, the score. Yes. Um, what were the conversations you had about the music and just giving it that creepy vibe? 
Well, so, you know, Chris is a freaking genius. I, I met him doing Dear White People season one. I had this big retreat in Palm Springs. I invited all of my uh, black female friends, writers, directors, uh, and a few other people that were just really close to me to come up and, you know, talk about the story. I, I felt that like, as a queer man, you know, it's kind of my duty, it's my lot in life, it's my role in many ways to tell stories about black women, um, you know, that tends to be where we end up in this industry as us homosexual black men. Uh, but um, also because like, I, I'm a little bit of an insider outsider. But what I didn't want to do is sort of just like gay male right over that experience. It's something that I, you know, decided to do really early on uh, in my career, particularly with your white people is make sure that the point of views that are, you know, uh, being referenced in the, in, in the piece uh, I have those in my life and in the process while I'm doing the work. And so I had, you know, all these women come out. We talked a lot about hair. We talked a lot about beyond hair, what hair meant to them and, and, and the things that they were really afraid of uh, in terms of, you know, their lives and careers. And during that same weekend, uh, Chris Bowers came out. We had a long talk about New Jack Swing. We listened to a lot of like Teddy Riley demos and we were, you know, discussing the difference between, okay, what's the L.A. Reid babyface version of New Jack Swing versus the Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis versus the Teddy Riley. And really like that was the beginning of it. He just kind of pulled from that milieu and, and yet created something totally new. Uh, and the minute I, I heard everything, I was just like, just thank God for Chris. Like he's so, so good. And it's so surprising yet exactly what I wanted and what I was looking for. Yeah, he, he's an yeah. absolute genius. I do want to talk to you about working with Tony Gardner for doing the in-camera yes. effects. Yes, it, 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 Another genius. Like, you've literally, like, Truly. collected this group of geniuses. Talk about working <laughs> with him. Tony was so great because um, one thing, you know, none of us could really quite figure out what it would look like. I mean, I described what the hair did in all kinds of ways in the script, but... Really, the only versions of this that we've seen are the movies that I mentioned before. Uh, of course, because, you know, they make most American horror movies. There's a couple of things about white men going bald <laughs> in the States. Um, but there was nothing that, like, really captured how I wanted it to feel. So I knew that, like, we couldn't just rely on digital CGI. We would use those, of course. Um, but right around the time that we landed on shooting on film, we shot this on 16 millimeter film, um, it felt right to do the special effects practically. Like we were embracing 1989 in every other way. Um, let's embrace the way they would have done the effects. And so uh, my, my assistant at the time, her name is Jamie Holt actually, she's a, a director in her own right. Um, but at the time she was assisting me, she knew Tony, linked us up, and we started talking about like, well, how would we do this? And he had a bunch of ideas and he was really excited. And he started doing these test videos of hair in water and reverse shots and making the hair look like it was like braiding itself. And like, I remember there was this little dog. He, it made it look like the hair was like eating the dog. And I was like, well, how did you do this? And so we just sort of kept developing that um, and came up with a way to get the hair to do all of these things in camera as much as possible that we would then go back and maybe sweeten here and there, but everything would be based on a practical effect shot. It's incredible, Justin, and congratulations on it. Thank you so it. much. Black Hair premieres October 23rd on Hulu. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. This episode was produced by Mackenzie Johnson and Michael Schneider. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head to Variety.com and click on the Awards tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races. 
as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Janelle Riley, Jazz Tanke, and Michael Schneider, I'm Clayton Davis. We'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.